2: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: That's really exciting because that's loads of new voices. Some of them have never had anything published at all before, like even self-published. So that's kind of, that's kind of cool. We're doing a lot of nice things for people. And they're learning but just by doing that without even going into like the more mentory side of things. They're, they're learning like how a production cycle works for a role-playing game, which
0: my name is jeremy gage and welcome to the draw your dice podcast this is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry listen alongside me as we hear from creators entrepreneurs and supporters about their personal best practices principles and philosophies i encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never ever about me. It is about who, about who, who I've brought to you today. Uh, I can't speak. I'm, I've been drinking. I'm not been drinking. Uh, I do not go to the drinking. Uh, small quick subscript. Today's guest that I brought to you is a one of the members of a long running project uh, known as Far Horizons, previously uh, San Janeiro. They have been working in tandem with, well, they will tell you how long they've been working with the project for in their introduction. But I would love to welcome to the show, Marks Shepard.
3: <sighs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Yes. That's a lovely introduction, actually. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Marks. It's an absolute pleasure.
3: Oh, you're welcome. I, it's lovely to be on your podcast. I've listened to it a couple of times and I really enjoy it. I like the format. So it's... Oh my God. Really how nice. did I also
0: miss miss that you're the host of the Yes Indeed podcast? Holy, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not good at my job. <laughs> <laughs> Never Jeez. mind.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yes, I am. (laughs) I am the host and producer of Yes Indeed Pod, which is uh, a podcast of indie tabletop role-playing game interviews with creators and other indie notables. And if you listen to this podcast and then go away and listen to Yes Indeed, you will see a step change in the level of professionalism i.e a step down to, to yes indeed but we yes yes indeed has been running for well by 18 months and my involvement with far horizons corp previously known as sanjana corp has been very slightly more than that time i think i joined in august or september of 2019 which is wow. an in ideal time to join any business venture amazing
0: great yeah mark's additionally sort of In tandem with your introduction, would you also just give sort of a brief lineage that in terms of like how you've touched the role-playing game sphere, maybe like what was the first game that you ever played? What was sort of the first thing that started getting you designing?
3: Well, (laughs) so I first started playing role-playing games through play-by-post forums, free-form role-play forums for... An in-development MMORPG, which was I initially started looking at because it was going to run on Linux, which I started using in about 2006. So here I am, a sort of precocious nerd, searching for MMORPGs because I thought that was really cool, and I found this game in development called Adelion, and they had this amazing. Forum where people would just tell collaborative, freeform role playing games, and they were just like, "Yeah, this is great." So I started doing that, and then I wrote some lore for them as well, and did all sorts. The game never actually made it to fruition, which was a real shame. From that, they, you know, a lot of people on the forums were interested in role playing games, and they said, "Oh, marks, you should check out. You should check out things like Dungeons and Dragons, and you should check out Spirit of the Century, and all sorts of cool games like that." So from then, I started. I don't know. I think I bought the. 3.5e starter box played that with my friends and i thought it was really boring i did not enjoy it at all and then i went to university and at university i joined a role-playing game society and the very first game i played with them was 7c which has recently had a very bad reputation (laughs) but it is a it's a wonderful game and i really enjoyed playing that and then i really enjoyed gming it and all sorts. And then I left university and I had no friends anymore and I couldn't play role playing games and I got very sad. So I started playing on play by post websites again. I started playing on Tavern Keeper and Tavern Keeper is an amazing space because it looks really modern compared to, say, Arpol or even things like Obsidian Portal. And it just looked very neat and clever and it just really appealed to me. And I started playing loads of games in Fate and a few other systems. And then, obviously, because this is the inevitable arc of anybody who plays role-playing games on the internet, I started designing them. And then, in 2019, I think I'd written a couple of games, I'd published them, they didn't sell at all, and I was like, well, why don't I try and start a bundle up? So I put a post on Twitter saying I'd really like to join some other like-minded indie tabletop role-playing game people and make a cool cooperative bundle. And Nem Ginty from Sandy Pug Games messaged me and said, hey, why don't you join the San Gennaro Cup? Because I think you would really get on with that. And basically, I haven't looked back from then. <laughs> I, uh,
0: uh, uh, that's amazing. That's what an amazing <laughs> story, especially. It's a long winded maybe- story. No, not at all. We love Long on this show. I've said it multiple (laughs) times. You are probably the, I think the third guest to sort of start in like a video game space. Hmm. Uh, I have Andy Burdan, who did development for like Mass Effect and for Call of Duty is sort of like their, his bigger games. And I think also, oh shit. I'm not, I can't remember. So many guests. (laughs) It'll come to me when I wake up at 3am tonight, but... Yeah, what I love that that's, that was like the start of your entry point. I also, I guess I still have a similar connection that way as well, in that I started very video games first. Some of my first like touchstones, were, like Super Mario RPG for the Super Nintendo. Cool. And yeah, yeah, and like Final Fantasy and Saga Frontier and a lot of like Square Soft when they were called Square Soft back in the games, slash Square Enix games. Uh, like, <laughs> oh, what's another like deep cut one? Oh, Final uh, trigger. uh. uh that, Chrono Trigger, awesome. Chrono Cross, yeah. yeah, yeah, Chrono Cross was the PlayStation won. One. Yeah. What, an, yeah, what an interesting battle system. Anyways, that's not to get on a completely different subject there, but
3: I mean, sure, if you were if you wanted to go back to, I guess, the real genesis of it, to excuse a pun, I suppose, it would be to say 1997 when my friend yeah. bought a PlayStation One and had Final Fantasy VII, the original, not the remake. <sighs> And this was the first time I played a computer game and I thought, not the first time I played a computer game, sorry, the first time I played a computer game where I thought the story actually means something here. And the Mm -hmm. story is what makes this game cool and interesting, like combat system aside, and all the other Mm -hmm. systems aside, I just thought this is really, really interesting. And I think from that point, I'm thinking video games can tell stories, but actually the story is what's interesting to me. So beyond mm-hmm. that point, I think there's kind of a, an inevitable arc which leads me to become a role-playing game designer.
0: <laughs> it's, it is fated. It's so cool. It's so, it's, it may, it might've been like a fated fantasy. No, I'm, I'm gross. But yeah, I, I think the same thing for me too is like, I remember playing stuff like Super Mario World. I remember playing like a lot of like Nintendo Sega games, like Sonic yeah. the Hedgehog that were just like level platformers. that didn't really have like a narrative mm-hmm. attached to them. And I think yeah. it wasn't until I played like, like I said, Final Fantasy, Saga Frontier, a lot of games with like, what was that? No, it's not called Contra. I can't remember. It's about a raccoon. You played a raccoon and you had like mechs and it was in like sky city things. I don't remember. Someone will, someone will, Wow! about it I'm sure. sounds great <laughs> yeah it's a great game it was a lot of fun and back in the day Mega Man 64 anyways yeah when the PlayStation 1 and like the Nintendo 64 came out and like Legend of Zelda started peeking up and having a more like dialogue based yeah. yeah. narrative it was really and then there was like a unique moment where my godfather at the time had a DD and fourth edition player's guide right so we didn't, it was an archaic tome to us. We couldn't decipher how to play the game with just that, me and my brothers. We talked about it for a ton of time. Like, what is a D20? What do these numbers mean? Uh, <laughs> no one would buy those things for us. So, shame on our parents, I guess. But yeah, video games also were, especially RPGs, were my first touch base and being just interested in play and make believe and yeah. play. Me and my brothers used to like, pretend we were Pokemon and battle each other, two people be the trainers, two people be the Pokemon, I'd ideal flamethrower, Mm. and my brother would make whatever interpretation of a flamethrower was coming from their mouth.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Worrying. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I think I probably did exactly the same thing. I know (laughs) know all kids probably play kind of role-playing games in the Mm. playground, as it were. I mean, I think uh, my friends and I will probably particularly prominent in that respect (laughs) and probably poorly known for it but it's definitely I think there is a sort of I don't know whether it is necessarily something that you could have predicted if you had known it from knowing me as a child which was I really enjoyed narrative and storytelling I really enjoyed role-playing in in, Mm -hmm. with my friends I really enjoyed all of that and like games that had story that that meant a lot more to me than I don't know i'm thinking of like mega blasters which nobody in the world yeah. knows what it is but it's that sort of game that doesn't appeal to me because it's not it, it doesn't have a story it's not interesting <laughs> also i'm mm-hmm. no good at no good at actually uh <laughs> any skill-based game whatsoever so mm-hmm. i have to opt for being good at storytelling instead which <laughs> i think is, is is good you know
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so as an additional to like sort of add on to the icebreaker before we get into like the meat of what we came here to talk talk about today also like the yes yes indeed pod like how why start it why why do the thing and did you ever envision it being what it is today i'd love to let people learn about you in that way too
3: well i think from that point of view i've not really changed my mission since we started yes indeed which is just to have kind of relaxed conversations between no not between with game designers and with people who want to talk about rpgs i want to talk about making mm-hmm. rpgs or playing them or writing about them or doing all sorts and just talking to people who are involved in the indie scene i mean i basically make a point of it being about indie and not being about mm-hmm. mainstream games insofar as is kind of interesting mm-hmm. so for instance i will talk to people about independently produced 5e supplements because i think that's interesting and that's a big part of the scene actually or i will Mm -hmm. talk to people who are you know massive fifth edition nerds but try and make it a bit more indie (laughs) Mm -hmm. so yeah that's kind of that's kind of what our mission statement has been it's to promote indie stuff insofar as it's possible
0: i mean you're part of the inspiration for this show so you know i'm glad that you did it that way
3: it's very sweet of you to say
0: (laughs) i um, publicly as well as privately. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I, I was sort of inspired by listening to shows like uh, Party of One, which is conversation mm-hmm. between two people, basically, or things like Design Doc Pod, where Evan and Hannah Schaefer have a chat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really nice, actually. And I, I really like these kind of low-key, chilled-out, intimate conversations between people about just stuff that they're interested in. And Mm -hmm. I'm interested in indie tabletop role playing games. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it started. Like, I think I mentioned it to a few people in the co op in January 2019. And by the end of the month, I'd recorded two or three interviews and was Mm -hmm. preparing to do like a zine quest extravaganza. So it it kind of went from there. Let's say 2019, 2020, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. And, And that's, that's been, you know, since then we've just done a lot of episodes, a few specialist series. We did too much for Zine Quest in February of this year, and we have some cool stuff planned for next year. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So, so glad to hear it, and I hope that
0: you continue to find joy and success in it as well. (laughs) The key is
3: taking breaks.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. God, do I relate recently right
3: now, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) truly right now. So when, Uh, when I started this, my partner said, you know, mm -hmm. this is fine. Just make sure you take, make sure you take some weeks off every now and again. I'm like, well, I'm only doing it every other week to start with, but how about I take every, every December off? I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And this year we have a new baby in the house. So I took August off as well. And like, just, I make sure just not to overstretch myself, and I think that's really important for podcasters and for creators in general. Because there's a, you know, it's exciting being in the indie scene. It's exciting making role playing games, but you just have to remember <laughs> that it's not everything. And if you if if this is just a hobby for you, then make sure that it stays that way, and you don't burn yourself out because it, mm-hmm. that's no fun and nobody wants that.
0: Yeah. Me and, me and my partner, maybe this will be a great transitionary point into today's topic, but me and my partner often talk about, like, the... Speaking mainly to American culture, I don't know if it's the same everywhere in the world, but kind of the the made-up 40-hour work week that is, like, a fossil of the Industrial Revolution here. Yeah. And most recently I brought up, like, I remember when... I was reading an article or something about how people are working seven days a week, but there is an issue with like going to church slash like going out drinking. Like a lot of factory workers would go out like Saturday evenings to drink for whatever reason. I can't remember what the the specific reason was. And then they would come to work absolutely thrashed the next day and their accidents were happening. And then people were trying to tell them not to drink, but then like drink is how we get our stress off of stress dissipated from working so much and blah, blah, blah. And they were talking about how, like, if we let all of our employees have weekends, we will never survive. All (laughs) of our businesses will shut down. Right. And we talk a ton about because this is to relate to like taking a break right i i truly think about like the farmer lifestyle as applied to like all all industries or things you know they work really hard for six to eight months out of the year depending on whatever particular crop they're growing Mm. and then for like five or four months they are like they're still working. They're doing like planning. They're like thinking about how they're going to make the bulk of their operations work during those tight spring and summer times Yeah, uh, and harvest in the fall. And then winter, they can't really do anything except prep for the next year. So like, what if, what if we took that same approach? Because there is, th- I think there's so much value in not only taking a break for rest purposes, yeah. but also reflection purposes. Like yeah. how did last year go? What could we do differently? Is there an efficiency we haven't found? Is there a mastery we could gain? And I think that sort of like work scope, you know, there's the book like uh, uh, Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. I've been hearing about, or I've been looking up concepts called like the zero-hour work week recently, where it's just like, yeah, Yeah. I'm super down with that. It's like conceptually to do a very bad explanation of it is, (laughs) is that- a zero hour work week is basically just like, you, it's not the concept that like, if you do the thing you love, you don't work a day in your life because people understand that it's work, but it's like, you're doing the work that you're passionate about and that's the drive that keeps you going. And you're always yeah. able to shift or produce new ideas that allow you to continue to be interested in the thing that you're doing instead of like yeah. sort of having a trickle down informational pyramid that's like one person or a board of people say this is our good idea everyone execute on it and that you know that may not be fulfilling to you so i definitely Uh think there is value in like the farmer seasonal yes
3: i think that's that's really interesting because i i wouldn't say i have links to these places but like in southern europe for instance Mm -hmm. I think Italy in particular, it's so hot in like late July and August that most people just don't work for those months or work very little. And actually, I think that's really valid. You know, like you take long holidays and schools are out and people just take a much more relaxed approach to life. I don't know if this applies universally, even across Italy, but it definitely applies in some places. And then Mm -hmm. the opposite side of it as well, like in Finland and uh, Northern Europe, they have kind of in the winter when it's dark a lot, they have a much more relaxed time there as well and they mm. don't don't do quite so much work. I mean there are other issues around the, the dark <laughs> winters in, in northern Europe, but working oneself to death, I don't think, is is one of those. So yeah, I mean people have been saying it recently, which is just don't die for capitalism. I think that's very valid yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not an ideology that you need to die for. So if you can help it. So yeah, absolutely. I'm down with that. I think I think I've always been really lucky. Going back to the other thing that you were saying, that my day job I've always found very stimulating and interesting. Aside from like when I don't have very much work to do for it, I just think it's a very fun and rewarding and fulfilling job. Which I, I guess is really that's a complete blessing <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because otherwise <laughs> I would probably have wanted to kick it in by now. You know. I think, and you know,
0: let's let's get into it. Let's talk about maybe some. Models or versions that might assist with adjusting the current capitalistic <laughs> landscape, and maybe find something a little bit more—I guess—utopic is kind of a, a brazened word, but maybe a more f- fulfilling option. So, you know, I brought I've brought Marx to the show today because Marx is recommended to me by one of the listeners of the show, and. Additionally, has been on my radar for some time in terms of the work they do with Far Horizons. So I guess first, Marks, would you sort of explain what Far Horizons is for you and how it operates? And then yeah. maybe we can talk about how, how that model has worked for you, how you might think it might work for others, and maybe if there are some things you might adjust if you were to sort of execute your own version of this.
3: Sure. I got, I got thoughts on that. <laughs> but all a little right, bit of a history, right. I suppose, <laughs> of the Far Horizons co So I guess it started back in 2019. I was not there at the start, so some of this is hearsay when Olivia Hill and I think probably a few others of the founders, which probably includes Nem Gimti and Dyer Rose, Basilisk Online, Francita Soto, a few people have been looking at pay rates in the industry. And there was, because there's always a conversation on Twitter about pay rates in the industry, there must've been at the time, somebody talking about somebody chatting shit, basically about Mm. three, three to four cent word rates being paid by, I don't know, Onyx Path or Paizo or some, some big corporation. Right. And people saying, Oh wow, look at that pay rate. And everybody else in the indie scene saying that pay rate is diabolical. And if you, if you do that, you will work yourself to the bone and you will never get anywhere. And Mm. So the, the intent then was to, to go away and try and come up with a better way of working that was fairer to everybody and was transparent and was equitable. And like the, the solution seems to be, or a solution seems to be, is to work in a sort of cooperative model where everybody has no more power and no more authority than anybody else. And we're just working together to produce something creative to produce something useful and interesting in our case i suppose tabletop role-playing games But there are lots of other cooperatives out there as well and so the, the way that it works in principle is that as we produce a book everybody puts a certain amount of labor in and we have a standardized way of breaking up royalty shares so that everybody earns the amount that they put so we have a standard rate of share splits for how many words you write, for instance, or how many words you edit, how many words you proofread, or how many pages you lay out, or what art you make, and, and so on. And it, it seems to work really well. And we've been producing stuff for, I, I guess, since the, the first one would have been the spring edition 2019. So it's been over two years. And we are on the ninth of our quarterly small games digests that will be that will have been published i think by the time that this episode goes out and we have a very successful kickstarter under our belt which was the Role Player's guide to heists which was in mm-hmm. autumn 2019 and was put out last year sometime mm-hmm. um and we have a few other projects which are bubbling under the surface, one of which is going to be released fairly soon, which is the Shonen Jump style Powered by the Apocalypse game Friendship Effort Victory, which is looks absolutely amazing and looks exactly like a manga. <laughs> it's gonna is gonna That's be absolutely right beautiful.
0: Up my alley for, it's yes. it's really
3: rad. It has it has some amazing art by Akuros and, and a few other people as well the layout looks absolutely on point the writing is great so that that is going to be that's going to be fantastic that's coming out really really soon and then we have a few other we have a few other ideas that are coming up in, in the next few months so yeah and at some point we changed our name from san Gennaro co-op to far horizons co-op i can't say when that is at the moment as it hasn't happened yet but will happen at some point in the next couple of weeks so yeah consider that a preview yeah what what else did you want me to touch on? Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a wild so, ride.
0: So maybe maybe it would be useful to I know you sort of like gave an overview of it already sure. but maybe it would be worthwhile to listeners who might be thinking about like cuz I'm definitely one of these people. I constantly think about like both far horizons and sandy pug games are really cool inspirations for me because I very much think about like innovating on traditional business models as like sort of a, as a history, I come, I've worked in the restaurant industry for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And in America, the traditional business model really exploits the goodwill of others for its success Yeah, in terms of like paying lower wages to servers and really having an entirely different wage system for servers as far as like minimum wage is concerned in America Yeah, based on, the crowdfunding concept of tips, right? We may not have, may not call it crowdfunding at a restaurant, but that's what it is. Really, is like how good you are in the in that hour to two hours you're engaging with another client, customer, uh, diner. You're yeah. crowdfunding yeah. for that tip, right? So, you know, you have to work really hard to get money out of people in a job structure that is supposed to warrant you some sort of security in case that. Doesn't happen, but that's not what restaurateurs plan for often. There are a lot more modern restaurants maybe that are outside of my purview that do something drastically different. But in my experience in rural Ohio and like the whole Rust Belt, no one starts their restaurant business thinking they're going to pay their servers 15 bucks an hour or a salary. They're like, we're going to pay you. $6 $6 an hour, and the rest is going to be a potentially effective rate of $18, which sounds really attractive, but is not realistic of the demographic, of how much marketing they're putting into their yeah. business, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, because I come from that space, and I'm seeing all this discourse around like what is an equitable ri- uh, wage for. Game designers, or really any game support staff, including editors, visual layout, anything that touches on a piece of content, what is a, what is a fair price for people? I think about that question all the time. So for, those, for myself, because this show is selfishly dedicated to helping me learn from really cool people <laughs> and everyone else kind of gets to listen, and I hope that also helps someone, would you give us maybe a more specific rundown of how... Uh, a project in Far Horizons from like getting it started to sort of like, you don't have to go through like the whole, whole kit and caboodle, but maybe like all the way up to Kickstarter release. Like how is everyone working on that? And what is like the um, sort of revenue share? Yeah. Yes. Thank
3: you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best. So our flagship project is our flagship product. Even is the, the quarterly digest of short games. And for Mm -hmm. that, we basically uh, have historically put out a book of 150 to 200 pages on digest mm-hmm. size every three months. And for various reasons, the latest one is sort of very late, which we won't go into, but we can basically just blame the pandemic effectively. Yes. So, and the way that that starts is because we have a kind of set production cycle that we know about, Actually, this is a really poor example. This doesn't go into what you were talking about at all. I'll start again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so currently, we are in the planning stages for a really cool project, which I'm probably not really at liberty to tell you very much about at this stage. Absolutely. But it is another sort of product on the kind of same lines as the Roleplayer's Guide to Heist. So it will be a collection of system agnostic, which is a horrible term, material for people to use <laughs> in their games howsoever they please and those games could be anything from i don't know apocalypse keys to hashtag i hunt terrible examples the examples i'm currently thinking of and so somebody in the co-op proposed this a very cool person called christopher falco who was involved with Roleplay's Guide to Heists and various other San slash Far Horizons co-op projects and is also a game designer in their own right. And the general principle was that everybody looked at that, sort of thought, that sounds really cool, let's get on board with that. And then we're in the early planning stages, which is the point at which we decide, looks like it's going to be a cool Kickstarter project. Here's our target, and here's what everybody on the project is going to be paid for writing, for editing, for doing artwork and for like various other things like I don't know, cartography or graphic design, or even things like being interviewed for being interviewed by podcasts or blogs or mm-hmm. going on stream and talking about this, that sort of thing. And so everybody knows upfront exactly what you're gonna be paid per word or per page or whatever. And so we build up a cost from that and then we put it out to Kickstarter and hope that people like it. And because everybody's put into it, we know more or less what our percentage cut of the final numbers are. Is So it inherently, if we get more money, we just individual creators get more money or we Mm -hmm. put more money back towards investing in the co-op, hiring people like, I don't know, accessibility layout, people like that who might not necessarily want to join the co-op for various reasons. And that's, that's where we're coming from with this. And yeah, I I th- I think it works really well because mm-hmm. the transparency looks cool and it means that you can't like cheat people because everybody mm-hmm. knows what you're going to be paid, right? So, yeah, and we've we've tried to be honest and decent in our dealings with each other and we I think it's pretty fair to say that we're all fairly radical leftists (laughs) which would (laughs) shock nobody to say that and yeah nobody is nobody is incentivized by profit we're incentivized by sharing knowledge and sharing Mm -hmm. success and mentorship and that sort of important stuff as well Mm -hmm. so yeah it it goes beyond the kind of classic oh let's make as much money as possible profit model which I have very little interest in.
0: <laughs> sure, there are some some sp- specific questions that I have after that explanation. If you don't mind, yeah, of me course, for yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, sort of the first one, you talked about how the price is determined or the cost of the project is determined ahead of time. Yeah, and is is that in relation to is that in relation to the specific individuals who be working on the project? Like, first of all, I guess as a small question. Is it a select number of staff that is working on any one Far <laughs> Far Horizons project? Or do all, like, 30-ish members touch uh, base on a single project?
3: I would say that... It, it, it's opt-in we don't we don't okay force people to work because most people are doing this either as a side hustle to their day job or as a side hustle to their creative role in the industry because we do this thing like we we train each other we do mentorship we make sure that we're all yeah. checking in and doing okay so there are like other non-monetary advantages to being a member of the co-op as well sorry was that so that, no, that was a that, perfect that answer to the question. <laughs> yeah, that was a perfect answer cool. to the question. Yeah, uh, so we're not so, all involved. Is the yeah the long and short of that?
0: So then, when you determine the cost of a project, yeah. is one are one of those variables the number of touching hands on the project? Like, does that cost go up if like? is it a difference of like if there are 15 people versus 20 people right do you adjust cost to sort of be a relative or scalable Uh, reference to the
3: technicians number of technicians i guess i i don't know it's kind of hard to say i I mean I, i don't think we typically like say that a more number of people project that's terrible lexicon we wouldn't say that a bigger project that's better is more difficult to run i mean it probably is in practice and i would say that we, we probably typically undervalue the role of a project manager in in that respect but you know we have that role we have that role reimbursed to some extent and i think that's important as well i think so. so when we're building up our costs it is to say Right. Well, let's say everybody on the project, write all the writers on the project, write 2000 words, say, and Mm -hmm. and I I can't remember that. It's probably fairly close to what we actually discussed. And we know how much we're paying per word. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: and again, I can't remember what that number is, but it's like, it's a decent wage. So everybody on the project is getting X amount of money and we know that. And then Mm -hmm. we can build up the costs from that. Rather than the typical thing, which would be to say, oh, I want to make a product which fits at the $25 price mark. And I think I can raise this much money through Kickstarter. Therefore, we will pay you X cents Mm -hmm. per word, which doesn't feel like a particularly ethical way to do a Kickstarter. I mean, it's, it's fine as long as everybody kind of consents to how much they're being paid. But... In some circumstances, when you're talking about big indie or big company, you don't. It's it, the the kind of consenting to working for seven cents per word for writing is different because your it, it seemed to be like quite prestigious to work for. ex uh, company. I probably shouldn't mm-hmm. just like name names here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah, you're good. You're good you know is i i stepping around the issues there i i feel like it's much fairer to build up these costs from a from a lower perspective and then build your kickstarter around your creators than it is to build it around your consumers and i know that people are doing this now and there's kind of the sort of a consumer backlash against some of the i don't know like I think Hard Wide Island is is an example of this. Not a bad example because they are paying their their pet they're paying their staff excellently, you know, by all reputation. But like some people might suggest that paying thirty dollars for a PDF is unacceptable. Not me, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, the, there's kind of this there's this there's this tension, I suppose, between whether you put your creators first or your consumers first. And my opinion obviously is that we should put the creators okay. first and build things around what's comfortable for people to work at. I think that's a, a really crucial
0: piece of the puzzle for a model like this, for sure. Because honestly, just to validate you uh, and anyone else who, who, th- who thinks like you, uh, meaning me also, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that I've never even considered like the second way, like building up the crowdfunding of a project based on the cost of the product firsthand and then building everything around the product versus what you're presenting here, which is building up from the hiring step so, or the number of hands yeah. or technicians you need for a project
3: so sometimes i think that that might be a, a sort of reasonable dividing line between indie and non-indie now i don't really go into this kind of gatekeeper stuff in general but what i would say is that some bigger companies mm-hmm. when you look at the products that they're putting out they are typically at that a set price point right so to mm-hmm. me it looks as though they must be working backwards from that point they have mm-hmm. marketing executives who say, "Well." You know, we want to put out X book at $25 because that's what we always do. So how can we make as good a book as possible for $25 whilst, you know, not making our costs astronomically high? Well, I mean, Mm -hmm. it has to get squeezed somewhere. And as you get a bigger and bigger company, you get more and more overhead. So your creatives are going to get less and less or they're going to be, what's the word? They're going to have to go through crunch, right? And Mm -hmm. none of that is fun. And none of that is none of that is like a nice way to run a company so i I feel like the the opposite model which is for you to build up your costs first and derive your prices thereafter Mm -hmm. seems like a sensible way of doing things i don't know (laughs) maybe that's not how stuff works in practice but i think it's kind of what we do and it's kind of what other small press small press companies are doing now i think so Mm -hmm. maybe i'm just speculating
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're certainly uh, a part of something that seems to be effective and successful in the way that it handles business. An additional question I had in terms of sort of your first explanation of this to dive a little deeper is you talked about how when you get sort of surplus funding, either the designers get paid more or you sort of reinvest back into the co-op. When you say reinvest back into the co-op, is there some sort of like banking pool of like resource dollars yeah. or like emergency fund stuff what is what is sort of like the purpose of of that
3: so the thing kind of things we've used it for in the past is things like commissioning co- full color cover artwork for the short games digest which mm-hmm. uh is expensive and we didn't have any skill in it within the co mm-hmm. so we've done that sort of thing in the past we've also talked about starting starting to have more print runs because at the moment we just do pair print on demand which is Mm -hmm. not very satisfactory for a number of reasons especially at the moment when print on demand is really delayed so we've looked at kind of well what we would ideally like to do is have the kickstarter campaign say that makes a cool game and people can get that printed on demand and then if there is money left over from that then being able to use that to invest in print runs or to invest in stuff that makes the co-op work better or Mm -hmm. you know in general, stuff that would be useful and would get our stuff seen or on bookshelves or at conventions, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it's not like a mutual fund that we can necessarily individually dip into. Mm-hmm. In fact, absolutely, it's not that. It is yeah. it is there to be used for the purposes of making things better for everybody, which I, which I think is, is quite nice. And like, we don't have shareholders who take dividends from that money. We, we're all just... It's, it, it's it's a collective pool of money that we use for mm-hmm. stuff when we can.
0: Yeah, it's very it's very interesting to think about when and this is going to be a project by project basis and a co op by co op basis. But to have some sort of like surplus fund storage, it's like oh cool, we made like we banked an extra thousand bucks, right? That's going to pay for your project management tool of of choice for another year. That's going to pay for yeah. Uh, that's going to be useful for like you said art projects or satisfying a technician role that we don't have fulfilled within the inner circle of the co-op right like you said getting full cover art or anything yeah. of that nature uh and that that statement sort of leads me into like the last sort of specific question about what you you mentioned here is that you have sort of like a, a mentoring model sort of rolling around inside of the co-op and do you often bring in new members? Like, do you outsource certain skill sets if you don't have them? You mentioned yeah. art, but I don't know if there's like anything else, like a um, project manager or something like that. How does the one, how does the mentorship work? And then, two, what is sort of the when do you yeah. induct sort of new members into the co op space?
3: Yeah, I think when we start new projects, we typically, if we are lacking in skills, we will post. Something on Twitter saying we're looking for new people to join these. Andrew, no, sorry, we're looking for new people to join the Far Horizons Co-op. Are you interested in coming on as a writer? Here's what we do. Here's what we believe in. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. Exciting opportunities. Fun mentorship. That sort of thing. And then we quite often get a lot of new people joining then, and we initiate them through some sort of horrendous hazing ceremony. No, no, that's not really what we do. We <laughs> You know, we just have a chill time together. We get to know each other. We learn what it's about. The, the, I think the best way to get to know people, especially creative people, is to work with them on a project, which is like what mm-hmm. we've brought them on to do. So for instance, the latest Short Games Digest has got so many new voices. I think, I think it has 11 games in it and six of them, I think, are from people who haven't published in a Short Games Digest before. Mm-hmm. I would have to check the numbers on that. And... Mm-hmm that's really exciting because that's loads of new voices. Some of them have never had anything published at all before, like even self-published. So that's kind of, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. We're doing a lot of nice things for people and they're learning by, just by doing that without even going into like the more mentory side of things, they're, they're learning like how a production cycle works for a role-playing game, which mm-hmm. isn't immediately obvious if you haven't done it before, you know, it's, it's not obvious what sort of, loops of writing and art and layout art you know it doesn't necessarily something that you think about necessarily i think in terms of mentorship we're mostly just a kind of trickle down of knowledge way but we also say that if there's a role that you want to do and you haven't done it before then, you know, step up and do it, provided you've got the tools to do it because we can't fork out the software for you. Then you're absolutely welcome to try doing layout. You're absolutely welcome to try doing digital art or or whatever, you know. And the one that I think people are kind of very keen to try and take on at least once is project management. And like mm-hmm. I, my day job is kind of very, It's it's not creative project management, it's engineering project management, but it's very relevant. So I do quite a lot of this and then, help other people understand what it's like to be a project manager on a creative project and Mm -hmm. a short production cycle, three months for a quarterly digest. That's kind of a really, really good way to get your teeth into doing this. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect or several aspects of what sort of mentorship we offer. I, I think another thing is as well, you're just kind of networking with people who've been in the industry for a long time. Like Olivia Hill has, has been working in the tabletop role playing game industry for I don't know, a couple of decades maybe. And mm-hmm. it's kind of great to rub shoulders with her and, you know, chat about what the production values look like on various projects. I mean, it was really cool as well to see her developing iHunt and see like the early drafts and stuff, which that was really cool. I should state that iHunt has absolutely nothing to do with the Far Horizons co-op. It is just incident. It has historically been in Liv's uh, Ascendara server. But you know, uh, this kind of speaking to people who've done a lot of stuff in the past and done a lot of writing, done a lot of editing, done a lot of project management and are really renowned layout designers are really renowned, uh, renowned artists in the scene. And it's very, it's very kind of good way to, to meet new people for potentially other projects or for other reasons. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I feel about it.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love that feeling. So sort of to think about, you know, if someone wanted to, I mean, it's going to take some, some math from the individual person, but usually do you, do you find that the number of members in the co-op have sort of like a, a maintained maximum, maybe either by choice or just by like circumstance? Cause you say that you, you reach out and say, Hey, we need some new members with these skill sets, et cetera, et cetera. Is that to fill holes from people like moving on to, yeah, yeah. sort of things? And we, do you maintain a sort of like, uh,
3: yeah, we've kind of got a bit of a brimming, we've kind of got a bit of like organic atrophy isn't the right word, but you know, people move on, as you said. Like, we have artists who don't necessarily do much work for us anymore because they get a lot of commissions, partly, I guess, because people have seen their stuff through the cop, which is fantastic Mm. that's you know sort of what we want is to make ourselves redundant i suppose and so then yeah we do identify that we have holes like at the moment we're we're always looking for artists because we always have more art requests than are fulfilled on our individual projects so yeah we're always looking for artists and sometimes looking for new layout designers as well Mm. i i i'm not sure if there's sort of a a target number that we have but basically if we if we feel like there's a excuse me, a particular hole in the in the skill set that we have. Like we've been putting, it sounds really corporate, but we've been putting skill matrices together recently, which is kind of mm-hmm. identifying what people are interested in doing as well as how competent they feel in stuff. And that's really good because that tells you straight away if there's an area that you are lacking in. Collectively, like individually, I know what I'm lacking in and that is digital art. But like collectively, we know that we don't have some skills and that we might need to make a request for... Fresh blood, as it were, in sometime mm-hmm. in the near future. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I do think that that kind of level of general people who are interested needs to be at a certain level of hype to get your project kind of. You need the momentum from yeah. a lot of people working on something to get it to get it through, especially at the pace we do the digests, for instance. Mm-hmm. And for that as well, you do need kind of a dedicated and relentless project manager (laughs) (laughs) i.e marks well yeah i mean i think we we have been trying to do have two project managers on things from now on because it's hard work and something that you can burn out at quite quickly if you have to be like really onto people all the time it doesn't feel like particularly rewarding but it's you know if you can share that burden i think a lot of people get get more out of that so yeah do you do you
0: find in the co-op for, you know, for someone who might want to create, I like to call them pods because I don't imagine to be bigger than like 50 people for any particular co-op. Yeah. But do you find that like if you had being one of like the central project manager roles for things or often a project lead, do you find there's sort of like an unwieldy number that you've ever experienced in a project or has felt unwieldy, right? I'm sure every, no matter the size, Management has like, everyone has particular life challenges that approach them at different times, which can probably make deadlines or completion sort of, uh, yeah. but it, has there ever been like a number like, Ooh, this was not a good idea. Sort of thing? I think that has we, ever happened to you.
3: Like we have periodically, people will have really good ideas about a project that they'd like to do. And every now and again, the something comes along that looks really, really exciting to begin with. And people start talking about it and planning it and then like i think as you said if you hit a certain critical mass on that and if it's not immediately like well managed and locked down then you get a bit of creative spiral and mm-hmm. suddenly you get a massive project creep um, creep and you just it's not going to be a manageable project anymore and i think that probably applies in a lot of sectors and I think oh, yeah. maybe, <laughs> yeah, and it definitely <laughs> applies to creative sectors because people have cool ideas and like, I don't want to say to you, oh, you can't do that idea because it's sort of beyond the scope of the project because I just want to let you do whatever you want because it's your life. And I think in, in some circumstances, and I know this has definitely happened on other projects and for other collectives that I've worked for, it just mm. falls through because you don't have somebody behind it to champion what that project actually means and to have an idea of what that project should look like Mm. and like before it gets too unwieldy like some kind of I don't know behemoth you know you want somebody who is focused on what the goal of a project ought to be and yeah try not to go too beyond that (laughs)
0: The Part of the reason, if you'll, if you'll humor my soapbox for just a second, part of the reason why I asked that specific question in relation to what we've been talking about is because sometimes when I talk about, I will call them innovative ideas, though I don't think myself that much on the pulse of the tabletop industry. I want to sort of put out there that, one, Far Horizons and any other co-ops I speak to on this show cannot a house every single creative in the tabletop rpg space nor b can they create every single idea so often when when i talk about these ideas with people like i had a long yeah. long series of like itch funding on on the podcast talking yeah. about like kickstarter alternatives and a lot of the pushback you know that we hear about creating something outside of kickstarter is that Kickstarter is a monolith when it comes to advertisement and getting new eyes on projects and et cetera, yeah, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. And it's, definitely. The, it's the, traditional thing, but a couple, couple of things. One, Kickstarter has been around for a while. Like they didn't start that way. They were a baby company just like any other baby company. And they just found a really good model that people were attracted to and kept innovating and made a thing. So my point in saying that is that even though Mark's here is talking about a very amazing Pod cooperative of people that are producing really cool projects at a really amazing pace, they still can't facilitate every single game or every single person who wants to work out there. So I asked that question to showcase that as I think about building a co op and as you listener are hearing this, and maybe there is an initial thought like, oh, they're already doing the cool thing. There's no room for me to do the cool thing. There is so much room for you to do the cool thing because this yeah. is not to diminish the successes of far horizons this is actually just to say that like there is a maximum threshold for this and it is not i don't know i don't even know what the sector of tabletop rpgs looks like in comparison to all other game sectors uh, <laughs> in the world and how many like, like demographical bodies yeah. it holds but i'm sure that there is a at least a five digit number of Creative people out there in this space that are doing a bunch of different versions of things and yeah, start your own thing. Do you, just get some people together, start thinking about like shared revenue stuff, and you you could do it too. You know, <laughs> the more you know,
3: <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I like. I think that would be the most validating thing would be to see more and more cooperatives starting up and fewer and fewer monolithic companies owned by mm. one or two creative people or formerly creative people perhaps who are now taking like a lead on things and are no longer getting involved in the day-to-day stuff i think the the opposite is much more interesting i mean okay yeah somebody whose namesake is the classic example of you know or well, the originator of <laughs> communist theory well okay fine but that's a big surprise to everybody, right? But, you know, I do genuinely think that cooperative action and collective action is, is more interesting and breeds innovation in a way that, like, uh, I think other things do not, like profit. Does mm-hmm. that breed, breed innovation? I don't think so. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's where I'm coming from with it. And it would be really lovely and validating to see lots of new cooperatives spring up or other forms of collective, collective endeavour.
0: It's coming. The Dryer Dice Collective is coming. I ooh, promise.
3: That's exciting. Uh,
0: that's not, that I, That should not be read as an <laughs> ooh. Like, I literally mean, like, tomorrow. I mean, like, I am thinking about it. Yeah. If, when my game gets together that I'm working on, I want a lot of, it's going to need a lot of hands. I have some huge plans. Well, fantastic.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, plans. like, uh, also, I would say, you know, if you have a cool idea for a game and you want to get involved with a cooperative or a, a collective, just approach them and say, hey, I have this cool idea for a game. I know you have mm-hmm. loads of people there. Like, why don't we work on this together? Like, mm-hmm. just just go ahead and do it. Like, what's going to happen if they say no? It doesn't really matter, does it? Then you can just make your own collective. <laughs> just, I
0: think that's don't necessarily have to grow
1: your own, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. The worst that anyone can say is no, right? Yeah, exactly. Maybe at the absolute worst, someone can get really mean about it, but that's I didn't a think they would experience. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely think there is also. Like, I think one thing, one of the things that the co-op model sort of fosters is. Cl- cl- not that the word hasn't already been used 10 times, but collective work, right? Like you get a bunch of people who can get together and be like, Hey, I was thinking about this for like the setting for the person who's like working on, I don't know, this faction or whatever. What do you think about like, including like the, I don't know. This, I'm making up a bunch of examples here. I don't know if any of this actually sure. takes place in a co But this is really similar to what we're
3: looking at now, right? Like our, our latest yeah, project yeah. is almost exactly this. And we're going to bounce ideas off each other and that's just going to yeah. improve the ideas for everybody
0: whereas like in a freelance model where you're approaching like maybe uh, this is no shade throwing, I'm not throwing any shade at any particular company, but I want to give like a, a static, a solid example. Like if we're imagining like wizards of the coast or evil hat productions, right? Like when you're in a freelance sort of market for work, you're sort of working in a vacuum to create an adventure or a setting piece. And then those things while individually cool may be, middling in like combination potentially because you're not sort of like interacting with each other. So it's kind of like, is the sum of its parts greater than the part itself sort of thing. At least this is my, this is my hot take. I, this is not reflect anything that Marx is saying here, just how I'm sort (laughs) of like processing what we're talking about here today and my love for collaboration and idea bouncing and creating resonant creation through conversation. Right. I love that i love n- nothing more gets me jazz. this is partially why i also still do this podcast nothing gets me more jazzed than like going like oh two plus two is four but four plus two is six hold on we're breaking through something here we're almost at 10 yeah. you know yeah, what i mean yeah. like absolutely uh, i i love that and i think that having a structure in which everyone has the ability to speak with each other bounce ideas off kind of still maintain their own individual creative control for whatever project they're working on. Right. I think that's important, but sort of like letting that almost like a, almost like something that is a very fast or or not a very fast, but a faster version of a feedback loop when you're doing like revisions and stuff, it's like faster, small revisions that create more resonant ideas. I think that's the tagline. I think that's the tagline of what I'm trying to say here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's kind of a, there's kind of a thing that um, happens in programming and computer development and software development groups, which is the idea of, Oh, what is it even called anymore? Agile. Right. So mm-hmm. the the yeah, idea yeah, yeah. is agile development Fucking is, love
0: agile, sorry.
3: <laughs> is uh, iterative, an iterative process, which makes everything better because you are trying. I mean, I, when I do, it, I try and find reasons that it's not, not going to work. Right. So I mm-hmm. try and find out a way that it's going to make it fail. And through doing that, you make a much better, you make a much better project. You make it more creative. Mm-hmm. You make it more innovative and you make it, you probably end up making it slightly quicker. And mm-hmm. I, I think it works really well. And I, I kind of think that the agile approach might work really well for tabletop role playing game design, but I think it probably doesn't need a big collective behind it to make it work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> Which is the downside. <laughs>
0: Definitely, definitely. It's something that means I love agile, like project styles. And I, in my own designs, I like immediately find the, the MVP version of like, how's this game play? What's like the, the absolute yeah. bare bones minimum. Yeah. And then like, if we have to muscle through something to like figure it out on the first play test, fine. There's actually a really interesting article by ooh, Daniel Cook, mm-hmm. right? Is that his name? Daniel Cook on his blog lost garden that randy lubin kicked me to this connecting the dots stage gate design which is sort of like taking agile concepts and what did he call it rocket ship concepts i don't it's a different different development model but stage gate was very interesting in terms of like its agile structure and that like you keep the the sort of like bare roots of it is like a branching idea tree and basically you you get a lot of... You decide what your gates are for production. Yeah. And as you come up with that ideas, yeah. you test them against the gates. If they pass the gate, they move into the next stage. If you find that you reach like a blocking gate, you go... You do say... You like archive all the previous ideas and the previous gate structure. And you start taking that second layer, applying it to the first layer ideas that didn't work, see if you can get them through the gate and then see if you can get them through the second gate. So it's like a very cool, like cross off check, cross off check, wait, uncheck that. Now check that, like that whole sort of like, yeah. Yeah. uh, Idea process.
3: I think that sounds really cool. It, It reminds me of kind of a long running series of thoughts that I've had, which is about, how modern system reference documents effectively provide you a framework for rapid prototyping games. This yes, sounds yeah. weird, but like, if you think about what rapid prototyping, which is like 3D printing effectively, right, mm-hmm. has done for manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Powered by the Apocalypse and Forged in the Dark are that for tabletop role-playing games. So if you have a concept of an idea of a game that you want to make, your minimum viable product can basically be building that in Powered by the Apocalypse systems or your your product can be, I don't know. And then you could move on to, well, that was cool, but it lacked X for one reason. Maybe mm-hmm. Forge in the Dark, which is a slightly more crunchy system, would work even better. And then you can build your, your own game sideways from these frameworks. And I think it's a really exciting way to... To do your development, because you can introduce settings to playtest groups way before you you need to finalize the mechanics. Right? You need people to be on board with the dress of your game more than you do the bones. If you like, mm-hmm. yeah. what a weird mixed metaphor. But sure,
0: <laughs> marks in my sixty episodes of of podcast so far, you have put words to something that I have felt about the creative commons SRDs of like, like you said, PBA, PBTA, forged in the dark iron sworn in that what they, what they offer you is a rapid prototyping and you start to like, I know we use the term hacking, right? Like I think, but I think there's so much more to it in the sense of how useful they are to, allow you to, like, what does Blades in the Dark look like in a solar punk setting, right? And then you sort of reverse backwards, like, okay, the flashback system does not serve this solar punk setting. You know, when we talk about do mechanics influence the setting, setting influences mechanics, blah, blah, blah. What you want, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You can work forwards, and then you can work backwards, like, again and again when you start using these SRDs in a way to, like... It's like buying parts for a car and then figuring out like, Oh, maybe I can add this to the engine or take this. Maybe this is actually like, we'll create a better system if we remove like, you know, figuring out how to do uh, electric cars. Right. You had, you had the fossil fuel car and like, okay, how can we make the frame of the car work, but without fossil fuels? That's kind of the same idea.
3: Exactly. I think uh, like a a really good example in The motor industry would be like Formula One (laughs) because every season there are different rules, just like in tabletop role playing games, there are different trends every now and again. And Mm -hmm. the aim of Formula One is to make a car that wins, and the aim of making a game is to make a game that people enjoy. And Mm -hmm. you know, you have these systems, these tools that you can build it up with, which are like, I don't know, rather than engine and chassis, you have things like setting and well, where am I going with a setting and mechanics and all, all sorts of things. But you also have things like, well, how's it laid out? How's it written? How's it edited and all that sort of things as well. And this is the, the idea ultimately with Formula One is over a season, you can gradually make smaller and smaller tweaks and eventually you have the perfect car matched with the mm-hmm. perfect driver, I guess. And that means that that car could win or not win or whatever and likewise with the role-playing game if you iterate you're going to get a better product which i think you know a lot of people do anyway and mm-hmm. it's not just iteration in terms of first edition second edition but it's like the 1.1 1.2 two point you know mm-hmm. two point whatever mm-hmm. and then finally you get you get to a point to where you you don't want to make that game anymore because it's kind of it's finished it's a, it's a, it's a complete project for you and like mm-hmm. that's done And then at that point, somebody picks up your version two and says, cool, I'm going to make 2.2. And then that's going to be my version zero on something. And that is, that's cool, right? That's kind of the GitHub model of (laughs) building stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I just think it's, it's cool. It's, it's, it's uh, in principle. And I, I, I am referring to this quite theoretically, I suppose, because I am yet to kind of really get my teeth into that sort of project, but in principle, that is a really cool way to develop stuff.
0: Mm. Um, yeah. Amazing. To, to sort of cap off the show, cause we're approaching that, that 90 minute mark. Yeah. If you were to, we sort of, I mentioned this off, off mic a little bit, but, and, if you feel like this is sort of a touchy question, you don't, and this is a negative question, just if you were going to do your sort of own co-op, right. If you were at some point going to split off from a far horizons and sort of execute, you know, do your 2.2, as we've just been talking about, Yeah, (laughs) what are you think, have you found there to be, and I want to preface this listeners, this is not like an attempt to like find shade or anything like that here. Are there any flaws you find in this current co-op model that you would sort of innovate on or try to iterate upon? Like if you were to kind of skip the trials and tribulations of starting your own yeah. co-op, are there some things that like someone who's listening could maybe work towards some some patch notes for you in the model? Does sure. That question I mean, makes sense.
3: Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is this is really interesting because recently I have I don't know how often, how much you kind of see anything from my Twitter feed, but like I I really absolutely like hands down absolutely love working for the co-op. I really really enjoy working with other people. I get a lot out of managing their time and so on. And yeah, I'm really excited of working with the co what i don't enjoy so much is feeling like my creative voice is sort of lost among mm-hmm. a collective group even though that's not really what the digest does because the digest is a collection of games that are like effectively written by one person and made good by a group of other people right but when you are when you are like that's wanting to produce a game and feeling like it will get a little bit drowned out by being within a larger collective. Mm -hmm. And again, this doesn't necessarily happen, but I I feel like a smaller collective (laughs) sometimes is, is, is what you want. So I, I basically said on Twitter, what I think I might do for a couple of projects whilst I'll carry on working for the co-op is to like work with two or three other people to make Mm -hmm. games and Mm -hmm. have lots of ideas bounce off together and have one person do some art and one person do some layout and people do writing and editing and just kind of feed ideas back into each other. And so that, like, the next couple of things I make are probably going to be in that model. And Mm -hmm. if I'm going to build up a collective again, which I I guess your question is perhaps what are your liner notes for jamming with a co-op, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to that is make sure everybody does have their own voice and everybody has an mm-hmm. outlet for their own creativity that can be seen and appreciated and applauded so that everybody doesn't feel like they are one among a whole, but like mm-hmm. that they are a whole lot of ones. I don't, that's mm-hmm. that's really poor language. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really bad <laughs> metaphor. But You know, I don't, I don't know. Like an orchestra is fantastic, right? You love listening to orchestral music. You like, you like the Mm -hmm. individual. You you like everything as it comes together. It's like wonderful to listen to a symphony, for instance. I sound really, Mm -hmm. really posh now, which is, you know, completely not true. But it's also really cool to listen to a quartet or Mm -hmm. like four people singing together because you can hear the individual voices there. So I think what I'm trying to say is that being able to, emphasize an individual's voice or an individual's creativity or artwork or whatever within a co-op is is definitely something that i think a lot of co-ops would really really benefit from working out how to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) basically yeah I think that's, I don't know, it's kind of like seeing the grain in a piece of wood, right? You, you know where it comes from and you know where it's going to. And it's kind of cool to be able to trace that along. And it's also very useful to have a piece of wood, right? So it's, it's, it's that sort of level of thing. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: think there is we, I play a lot of volleyball. Right. Uh, pickup game of volleyball. And we started a Facebook group chat. That was just like 10 people that we met over the course of like going to parks and playing and meeting new people who also wanted to play. And we're kind of like the kids at the playground who like are on the outskirts, but don't know what to do. And you're like, Hey, come play with me. And you're like, and it's has sort of ballooned to like a group of 50 people. Yeah. And there we're starting to see some like friction between like What is the intention of the group? Is it to like facilitate a sort of more competitive mastery set of people? Or is it to be like friendship park time? And I think there definitely is some value in pointing out that when brands, companies, collectives start to amass more and more thinkers, it can definitely feel like maybe a very morbid example, but a little bit of a drowning effect, right? You, Yeah. yeah. the rain starts to increase more and more and there's more and more water of ideas and it's like hey hey don't forget oh, 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 that hire me for your foley work and yes i do think there's value in keeping like a tight
3: yeah group yeah
0: because it is there's there's a give and take right it, that number is yeah. gonna be different for everybody it's like what sort of like You know, when I thought about my own co-op, I thought about, like, I would like someone to be in, like, a static marketing position. Someone who, like, understands the voice of the collective and can, like, present that out to Twitter or Instagram and Discord and stuff like that. I think about those sorts of roles and how, you know, I would never want the actual design group to be... I thought a lot about, just as a small small pitch, if you're going to do something new, you can have this for free. But I thought about... My partner, I was talking to her about this idea and she brought up like art residencies and that really start, struck a chord with me. And Yeah, like, that's interesting. What if you had like a tight group of designers, like four, four to five people, and that fifth or sixth person is a resident who comes onto the project, works wow. through the whole thing with the small group. They get yeah. the opportunity to be paid with the Kickstarter stuff, but also have like maybe make a contract of like for the next year you receive passive income on, on every game that's sold, right? That's the revenue share thing. So that person that comes on gets like a full education to touch base with like each and every role. And then this is going to sound pretty, maybe to some people a little disheartening maybe, but like, it's like the McDonald's franchise model. What I would ultimately do for that resident is like, let them leave with an operations manual to execute their own pod, right? Here's all of our trials and tribulations Maybe, you know, if we're thinking about the business model, but shoot us like 2% a year of like using our methods or maybe we can attach you to our brands. You get some like jump in marketing and start your own pod. Like after you leave us, start your own thing, create, if this is something you really love doing and you found parts of this that you're interested in, when you leave as a resident, I want you to leave with power. I want you to leave with education and I want you to leave with a little money in your pocket so you can put forward the next iteration of this. Right. So I've thought about what you're saying, like a tight group and maybe like a residency that cycles in every quarter or something
3: like that. yeah that's really cool yeah that does sound really cool <laughs> yeah well, i mean
0: that's, <laughs> so that's such, that such a great idea yeah
3: i am very down with that yeah <laughs> go yeah. forth and do I it think,
0: yeah yeah I, but yes anyways that's all to to touch back and, and riff on the sense of i think there is value in keeping a tighter group of like a team of 10 To me, this is just my own personal intuitions and how I would feel like a team of 10 sounds like the maximum I would ever want from my own personal pod, right? And then maybe I can do like consults with a couple other tight knit pods if they're looking for some like advice or uh, counseling or maybe we trade members every once in a while or something like
3: that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so, so within Far Horizons, we do have these kind of working groups, if you like, mm-hmm. working on individual projects. The the digest itself is a different beast because that's kind mm-hmm. of our training and mentorship flagship product, mm-hmm. if you like. But yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I feel like I can manage 20 people. I can manage mm-hmm. 25 people. I don't feel like I could be myself within that number of people. And yeah. I don't think that my voice would be as well heard. And mm-hmm. I think the sort of models that you're talking about are so exciting. And that, that sounds, that sounds like the next step in of evolution. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> my, my head
0: is, that is so the, That is the Charizard right there. Yeah. <laughs> maybe not the Charizard, maybe the Charmeleon. Uh, <laughs> but you know,
3: I get it. I get Pokemon young people. Come on. But... I'm going back to what you were saying earlier. <laughs> yeah yeah cool um, amazing charizard is the only one i could think of because i am a child <laughs> of the 90s <laughs> <laughs> hello children i also Pokemons.
0: uh but marks it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show i think we talked about Likewise. some really cool ideas yeah. that i would love for listeners to to touch on yeah uh would you give a final in outro for yourself again like where can people find you get in touch with you buy your stuff I want you to make as much money as possible all these links that Marx <laughs> is about to uh, provide will be in the show notes for your access listeners
3: sure okay so the 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 number one place you can find me as a person is on Twitter I am at I am Fofos that is I A M P H O P H O S and that is the correct pronunciation of Fofos for all streamers and podcasters out there. The second place you can find me is marks-shepherd.car.co which has got a link to various other projects that I do such as my own imprint, Marks of High Water which is on HGO exclusively now having dumped DTRPG and you can also find me as a member of the San Gennaro slash Far Horizons Co-op I do not know what our new Twitter handle is going to be so (laughs) you will be able to find us on Twitter somehow. Um, and of course, you can follow me on Yes Indeed Pod. Uh, yes. Again, you can find me on Twitter at Y E S I N D I E D P O D. And I would love dearly, dearly to hear from you. And yes, Yes Indeed Pod comes out every other Sunday ish at about 5 p.m. GMT. And it will definitely be on next year because I've already booked loads of guests, including. Yes. Some very cool people. Yeah, I know. We're going to be talking to Federico Sones again. And we're also going to be talking to Vincent and McGray Baker in March, I think. Wow. Yes. I'm very <laughs> excited about that. So I just tell everybody now. <laughs> so it better happen. <laughs> God damn it. Bakers don't make a liar out of me. If they listen to
0: this show. I also appreciate <laughs> I'm it sure they do. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um. Yeah. Thank you, Marks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us. I learned a ton from Marks, and I hope that you did, too. And we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people,
3: Marks. Goodbye, everybody. Bye!
0: All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Marks and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Marks or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time.